was thinking in preparation for this text this week, and you'll see the connection of why, but I was thinking about a, a restaurant that I really like in town. Uh, I gave a little free advertising to them. There's a restaurant that I really like called Oak and Alley in town. It's a hamburger place. It's a local place, and one of the reasons that I like it is I like how they approach their menu, and this is what I mean by this. I think it's smart. If I had a restaurant, I may do it like this, but uh, their menu, it's basically burgers and fries, but they have uh, a list of burgers that they offer all the time. You could go in any day that they're open, any time, and you can order any of those. And they're all, all the ones I've had are really, really good. Uh, but they also have one option every time you go in that they call the traveler. And some of you know what I'm talking about. And they, what they do with this burger is they take every, I think it's about every four weeks or so, they totally overhaul this thing into a brand new version of a hamburger with all sorts of different toppings and bun and whatnot. It's, it's just totally different. And the one that they did, that they used to have, just goes away, typically. It, it's no longer offered again. And while that is a good strategy to get people to keep coming in, because they want to try it and maybe come in every month or so. It also sets up in a, a situation that can be unfortunate where uh, I've seen this happen to a friend or two when we've gone into the restaurant where you've heard word on the street about how good this version of the Traveler burger is and you get all excited to go eat it and try it and you sit down uh, to eat lunch or dinner and you're talking to your waiter or waitress and realize, oh, we stopped serving that a couple days ago, or yesterday was our last day uh, that we were serving that burger. And even though you know whatever you get instead is probably going to be really good, you can't help but feel disappointed that, oh, that, that, like my mouth was watering just waiting to eat that thing, and, to, to, and now I'm disappointed. I can never actually experience that. I can never actually eat that myself. And the reason I, I mentioned that, that I was even thinking about that, is as we think about spiritual gifts, we've been going through a series about spiritual gifts uh, in the life of the church from the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, you could, in some ways, think of spiritual gifts kind of like those burger, that traveler burger. That some people think when we read about certain gifts of the Spirit that the Spirit was giving out in the days of the early church, some people think that when we read the Bible, we, we can read about these wonderful gifts. These were wonderful gifts of God by the Spirit to the church to build people up, to, to extend the fame of Jesus. And we can read uh, about them and get excited about them. And then we even have commands like what we saw a couple weeks ago to desire these things that are embedded in the Bible. We're told to desire these gifts, to want them, to have this longing for them. But then some people think, and they have reasons that they do, which we'll, we'll talk about, but they think that even if we read these records, we hear their testimony about how wonderful these gifts were. And even if we have a desire in our heart to experience these gifts or to be given these gifts as an individual or as a church, they think that they are off the menu. That the Spirit, even though he gave them uh, in that day and time, that there came a time where he stopped giving those gifts. No matter how much we hear about them or long for them or desire them, they're off the menu, so to speak, and they will not be given to us. That's what, what some people think. And this is an important question for us as individuals and as a church to think about is, are the gifts that we read about in the New Testament, and these chapters we've been looking at in particular, are they still, to use the metaphor, are they still on the menu today? Are they still being given by the Holy Spirit to Christians? Are they still being given by the Holy Spirit to the church? Or were they like that traveler burger just for a time? And although they were wonderful and powerful, they had their time and now they have been gone. And our text today brings us right to that question. It inevitably presses us to try to answer that question. Are these gifts of the Holy Spirit for today or were they just for that time? Are they, are they still given? Are we still to hope for them or expect them and to use them in the life of the church? So we're going to look today at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We'll start at verse 8 and we'll go to the end of the chapter. So verses 8 to 13. And the next week we'll pick back up in chapter 14. But if you haven't been here, that is okay. I think you'll still be able to track along with us. But for several weeks, we've been, we started in 1 Corinthians 12, and we're going to go up through even the start of 15 a few weeks from now. Uh, but we've been reading about the instructions and the reminders that the Apostle Paul gave to this church at Corinth about spiritual gifts. It seems like they had asked him about these things, and now he's giving instructions, he's giving reminders, he's, he's going to give even cautions and rules about how to use these gifts. But we've been working through uh, these texts for several 
several weeks now, and we come up to chapter 13. Last week, uh, Pastor Larry preached a wonderful sermon from the first half of the chapter 13, where Paul was talking about love. That no matter what spiritual gift the Spirit gives to you, or gifts that he gives to you, that when you use them in the life of the church, you're supposed to use them in love. That should be what motivates you. It should mark how you actually use them. And so we're going to pick up there. You'll see that verse 8, where we're going to start, starts with the word love. You'll see that the end of verse 13, the last word in most of your translations is love. So he, he's continuing this theme of love, but we're going to see that he addresses this issue of when certain spiritual gifts may end, like when they may stop being given. And so as we read this, I'd encourage you to look for a couple words, a couple phrases. Listen for when he talks about, he uses the word now, and then he'll use the word then. So he'll talk about his day and age a couple thousand years ago. He was writing about things that were happening now, but then he was anticipating a time that was yet to come from when he was writing this letter that he calls then. Then certain things will stop happening. Then certain things will stop being given. So you'll notice those words now and then, but you'll also notice he uses present tense verbs to describe what was going on at his time, but then he, does, he uses future tense verbs like such and such will happen. Such and such will stop happening. And so you'll see very clearly he's talking about a now of his day and a then that was to come at some point after him. And we're going to try to figure out, are we in the now that he was writing about? Or are we in the then that he was anticipating? So follow along with me, verses 8 to 13, as we read the words of the Apostle Paul, uh, written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says this to this church, Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. This is the word of God. So I want to walk through this text briefly, and then we're going to kind of zoom back out to look at some of the rest of the New Testament. But I want to start, as we do every Sunday, with the text at hand. What is Paul saying? What's he trying to get across to this church, to the Christians that would have read this at first, and then by extension to us? So in thinking of these categories, he's clearly talking about of now, of his day, and then sometime that was to come after he wrote this letter. You see right at the start, verse 8, after he says that love never ends, he starts this language of now and then, or of what's current reality and what is going to be future reality for him. And in verse 8, uh, you see that he, it's been assumed even in chapter 12 and 13 that there's a whole abundance of gifts that are being given to this church at that time. All sorts of gifts. You can read back about them in chapter 12. It wasn't an exhaustive list, but there's all sorts of gifts that are operating in the now. But then verse 8, he talks about sometime in the future from when he wrote this, where he saying that at least a few of these gifts, he mentions prophecies, tongues, and knowledge, or words of knowledge, maybe from back in chapter 12. He is saying at some point from when he was writing this letter to them, at some point future, these things will stop being given, that they will pass away, they will cease, they, they will be done with, their purpose will be over. And so we'll, we'll revisit that, obviously, here in just a few minutes. But if, that's what he's saying very clearly in verse 8. There is a time where at least those three gifts are going to stop being given, stop being useful in the life of the church. And then verse 9 and 10, he starts to elaborate on this. And he starts saying that he uses this word partial or in part. And then he contrasts that with when, what he calls the perfect, when it will come in the future. So saying it wasn't present in the current reality of when he's writing. So what he's saying is happening now as he's writing this letter is that there's this partial operation of gifts. 
There's this partial good that is coming to people uh, through the use of these gifts. But he's anticipating a future time in verse 10 when the perfect will come, when the, the, the good that is coming in part through those gifts is now fully experienced. The things that they're giving in small form is now fully experienced. He's anticipating that time to come. And as he's talking about partial gifts, partial benefit of gifts, I, I was thinking of the analogy of uh, many of you, if you live in town, every single night when the sun goes down, street lights come on. Or maybe you have house lights outside of your house. Uh, those are real lights, correct? But they're very, very limited in what they show us. They're very, very limited in what they reveal. There's still tons of dark areas. Uh, They don't illumine everything. They don't show everything, but they're still real. They're still helpful. They're still benefiting us by showing us where the stop sign is or where the step is or where to go or not go. They're giving us real benefit, but it's in part. They're not showing us everything. But then when the sun comes up, when it came up this morning, even if those lights were still on, they're not really useful anymore, right? Uh, because they're overpowered by the perfect, by the far greater light that has risen. And so their purpose was in part to show us certain things, to, to make us wary or be able to see certain things. But there comes a time each morning when the sun comes up and those lights aren't needed anymore, right? And so he's saying that these gifts, at least prophecy and tongues and knowledge, these words of knowledge, uh, they, they served a purpose, a real purpose in his time at least. But he's anticipating a time to come future when they won't be needed anymore because the perfect is going to come. When the things they're giving us in part, we experience fully. And then in verses 11 and 12, he starts to use some analogies, some illustrations to explain this whole movement from the now to the then, from the partial to the full version, to the complete version of these things. And he starts in verse 11 by talking about talking about his own life. He says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child, thought like a child, reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I grew up uh, and gave up childish ways. And so what it, he's using a very obvious thing we see if we're around kids at all, uh, that a one-year-old can say things like dada, mama, stuff like that, little one-syllable things that really mean something, right? A, a two-year-old can say things like I go potty, mommy, or something like that. And that really means something. Like it's really communicating something. Um, But when when we are 36, we should not be saying stuff like that. I don't call my dad, dada, anymore. And I don't tell my wife, I go potty. Like I I talk and and it's not that one didn't mean something. It meant something, but it was in part. But when we grow up, there's this fuller ability to communicate and to speak that comes. And so this idea of speech, of moving from uh, immature speech to mature speech is somewhat what he's saying is going to happen with some of these gifts, that there's this partial form that's real, that really has effect, but there's going to be a fuller version, ability that someday is going to come. He uses the idea of them reasoning like a child and how when he grows up, now he thinks and reasons like a man, like an adult and I was thinking about this, a four-year-old may fear that there's a monster under her bed. And the way that she alleviates that fear often is by actually pulling up the bed sheet or the bed, the cur- bed curtain or whatever it's called and looking under the bed to verify with her eyes there's no monster under there, right? That's a legitimate way to verify that there's no monster in a, in a four-year-old's way. But an adult, we don't have to open up the, and look under there. We know there's no monster because monsters that live under the bed don't exist. Right? And it's not that the four-year-old logic and thought isn't true. It is, but there's this fuller version that comes with adulthood. And so he's saying that these gifts, in a way, are like this, that the way we speak, the way we think, the way we receive information and process things, these gifts help us in real ways that he's mentioning here in the now of his day, but he's anticipating a day to come when there's going to be fuller versions of those, that knowledge. Fuller version of that speech. Fuller version of that intimacy with God that comes. Then in verse 12, he uses this analogy of a mirror. He says, now we see in a mirror dimly, but then 
face to face. And I, I love this analogy that he uses because he's using an analogy that we can still relate to today. Imagine if you have a mirror. You could imagine it with a, a window as well. But imagine you have a mirror and somebody's behind you. And, but the mirror is kind of foggy and dusty and maybe oily or greasy or whatever. And the person's behind you. And if you're trying to learn things about them you, and what they're doing or trying to communicate or what they look like, you can look at that mirror and depending on the state of it, you could tell who that person is. You could tell kind of how they're moving. You could tell maybe general facial features, but you're not going to be able to see the fine-tuned little details of, like, countenance of their face or things like that. You're, you're going to be able to see in part and kind of discern or imagine looking through, like, a frosted window or when it gets cold outside and our windshields are kind of frosted over. You can still see out that window and kind of know what's going on out there. But he's comparing those types of experiences where you see legitimately certain things and you know certain things. He's comparing that with turning around and looking right at the person. How different is that? That there was real knowledge we had, real ways we could see them or engage them when we're looking at the mirror. But he's saying that, that these gifts, there's going to be some time later when it's like we went from that. That's a real understanding and real engagement. And now we see fully. Now we see their face. We see everything about them. There's no barrier anymore like there is with the gifts in his day of prophecy and tongues and words of knowledge. As an aside, before I talk about spiritual gifts more, I want to mention something from the end of verse 12 that I love that has nothing to do necessarily with spiritual gifts. But I love how he says, now I know in part, then I will know fully. But then he says, talking about what's going on right now, he says, as I have been fully known. And what he's saying is that in the now, like before all that changes, whenever we may think that was, he's saying in the now of his day, he is fully known by God. That even as God sees him perfectly in all of his sin, all of his rebellion, he's saying even now, I am known by God. Like I am loved by him. I am cared for by him. And I may not see it in return the exact same way, but he sees all of me and loves me nonetheless and forgives me nonetheless. And I want to say to everyone in this room that that can be true of you today as well. That, that God sees, he sees perfectly everything about you. He knows more about you and your sin than you even know. And he doesn't look at that and just recoil at you and ask us if you have no ability to come to him. He has sent Christ to die for those sins that he sees. And he tells you that if you will repent of those sins and place your trust in Jesus, who was crushed for those sins, who was raised from the dead, if you will turn to him, he says, you will be fully known by me. You will be received by me. I will not keep you at arm's length. I will welcome you fully into my family. And so before we talk more about spiritual gifts, I want to tell every person in this room that you can be fully known and loved by God the Father if you come to him by faith in Jesus. And I would love to talk with you about what that looks like and what that means. But praise God that we can be fully known even now. We don't have to wait for that, even though our knowledge will increase. So the question I want us to ask the rest of our time is this. Is are we living today, 2019, are we living in the now that Paul was talking about? Or are we living in the then that he was anticipating? Are we living in the now where there's this partial use of these gifts? Or are we living in the then that he was describing, that he was awaiting to come at some point after he wrote that letter? And there's disagreement that we have uh, within the broader church about how we answer this question. It's significant. It's important for us to think about. Because how we answer that question will shape whether, and it's obvious when we think about it, it will shape whether we expect those gifts to still be given today and to still be used, to be desired today, or whether we expect that to be totally shut off, that it's off the menu, that, that they're no longer given any longer. And there's two positions. There's nuances of this, but we got to paint with broad strokes today. Uh, there's two positions that are generally held uh, about this question. One would be what people call, and these are both big words. I didn't, I would pick simpler words, but these are just kind of the words we've inherited. Uh, there's a, a group of people called continuationists. That's a bunch of syllables. Continuationists would believe that, uh, that we live in the now that Paul was describing back in the days of 1 Corinthians. 
that, we, that these gifts continue to be given today. That's the name. That they continue to be given today and as they are given, they're to be used. But then there's an approach to this question, an answer to this question of people who would be called cessationists. That word's even harder. Uh, but in there, you probably see the word cease or you hear the word cease. Cessationists believe that we live in the then that Paul was anticipating, that these gifts that were definitely given in Paul's day, that's no question, we all agree on that, that these gifts have stopped being given, uh, that, that they've ceased being given, that the Spirit pulled them off of the menu, uh, so to speak. And so as a church, we would hold to, as our official doctrine, I would hold to as an individual and all of our elders would hold uh, to this position, the first position that I mentioned, that we would be in what people call continuationist camp, that we would answer this question by saying that we live in the now that Paul was describing to the Corinthian church, uh, not yet in the then, that the then is still to come even from us today. Uh, so we would hold to that position. But some of you maybe have never even thought about this. Some of you maybe have never uh, uh, read scriptures or heard arguments about these. And so I wanted to briefly, this is maybe attempting, this is maybe a fool's errand, but I want to try to, to describe why these groups think what they do about this issue. And then we got to zoom out and read some other texts from the New Testament to do that. And then zoom back in at the end to back to 1 Corinthians 13. But this is such an important question. And I, I want us to start as we think about this by emphasizing where we agree. We should always start there, okay? Where we agree, first and foremost, is that we believe the same gospel. And we trust in the same Jesus. Like we all believe because of what the Bible says that we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus. And because of what he has done and is doing and will do for us. We all believe that. We all believe and we agree that most of the spiritual gifts that we read about in the New Testament are still given today. That the, a huge majority of the gifts we see described in the New Testament, there's no question about that, they, that they're still given, they're still, as they're given, to be used for the benefit of the church. So we all agree upon that. And we also all, or I won't say all, but most would agree, and this would involve a longer discussion, but we also agree that the gift of apostles what I would call like capital A apostles, like men that encountered the resurrected Jesus and were commissioned by him to start churches and to write scripture, that that gift was one that by design was temporary in nature. That it was given to 12 men specifically and then nobody else. Even though there may be apostolic type of ministry people could do to, to plant churches, the office of the apostles, uh, we believe by its very nature was designed to be temporary and only limited to those 12 men. But where we would disagree, even though we agree about a mass amount of things, where we would disagree would be about a handful of gifts in particular. Uh, five, I would say. Three of them are right from this very text today. The, the gift of prophecy, of tongues, of words of knowledge we see referenced in this passage. But then also ones that we saw back in chapter 12 of miracles and healings. These, these, this is the kind of cluster of, of gifts that some uh, disagree on. Some think that, that they cease, some think that they continue. And so I, I want to share why people believe both and why I believe what I believe uh, about this. I, I want to note, though, as we uh, come to this question, the danger when we have disagreement about the scriptures, the danger of creating straw men, some of you may not have heard this term before, but there's this idea like if you uh, come into disagreement with a person, you're going to kind of share ideas and uh, go back and forth with each other. It's one thing to like debate a real person, like a flesh and blood person, like where we can actually have dialogue and you can actually make good points to me and I can make good points to you. Uh, but what some people do when they have discussions like this is that they uh, act like they are fighting or arguing or logicking against some straw man who is like, who's intimidated by that? Like, that's a joke of a way to represent the other side of the issue. That's like nothing. That doesn't even accurately describe what they think. And I can look impressive by like tearing down some straw man. Uh, that's not at all ever what we want to do. We want to believe all things like we saw last week and take seriously the disagreements that we have and why people believe these things as they come to the word. Because we are brothers and sisters in Christ who have minds and we have thoughts and we, we can learn from one another. So may we never just build up some straw man that we act like it's easy to, to take down. We, we need to come to the scriptures together to try to understand these things. 
So I would say there's two basic reasons why, or if I'm trying to summarize, two basic categories of why people disagree about these gifts and whether they, we live in the now or whether we live in the then. The first one I, I want to describe is this, is uh, it's regarding the purpose of these gifts, the purpose of these gifts. So cessationists would believe that that group that believes that we're in the now are in the then that Paul is describing that that these gifts have stopped. They would argue this. They would they believe that the, these gifts were given to validate the apostles and their teachings. Uh, that they were given. They they would even call them sign gifts. And I don't mind using that category. They would call them sign gifts that were used to validate the apostles. Think about this. As these apostles are going into a city like Corinth or to Ephesus or to places uh, in their known world, they are taking a message of a 30-some-year-old Jewish carpenter who died on a cross as a criminal outside of Jerusalem and then they say was buried in a tomb and then came back to life a couple days later and has ascended into heaven. And the way that you can receive forgiveness of sins is by placing your trust in him. Casting your lot with him. You can imagine people in those towns thinking, why on earth would I believe that? And it's as as if uh, with these signs, with these supernatural, so to speak, gifts, that God is giving these men these abilities to do things and and these gifts that will be imparted to show people this message is true. This is not some guy just blowing smoke, making up some crazy, wacky story. This is the truth of God, and you better listen to it. It's sort of like when Moses went to Pharaoh, if you've read that back in Exodus, where God gave him signs to do when he went to tell Pharaoh this message that Pharaoh would not want to hear. Cessationists would argue uh, that these gifts of the Holy Spirit were given to validate the apostles and their teachings. The bit, there is good biblical ground to believe this, and spoiler alert, I actually agree with this, okay? So if I want to show you in Scripture uh, why they believe this and why I believe that even, uh, a text like 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12, uh, says this. this. is another letter written to this same church. Said, Paul wrote this. He said that the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. So he's referring... Uh, two things that happened at this very church that we're reading this letter from, saying that there were these signs of an apostle that were conducted amongst them. There was this proof, this validation through these gifts uh, that he really was from God, that, that this message really was true. And then an even more convincing text, another one I'll share, is Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3 and 4. That the author there has been talking about this message of a great salvation, this great salvation that's offered through Jesus. And as he's writing, he says that this message of this great salvation, this is the phrasing that he uses, was declared at first by the Lord, that would be Jesus, and it was attested to us by those who heard. That's most likely the apostles. Uh, so it was attested to us by those who heard. And then listen to this. He says, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. That is very clear. That, there's no mystery about that. that. The writer of Hebrews is saying that even God himself, part of why he was giving certain gifts of the Holy Spirit was to attest to the truth of the apostles, that this message of salvation that was going out across the world, God was giving gifts to accompany that, to come behind that and show that it was true. And so when we read texts like this, the logic of a cessationist would be this, would be uh, the, the folks who would say that we live in the then, they would say this, that these gifts were so tied with validating the apostles' teaching that when the last apostle died, and that when the last, whatever we, letter we have here is last, probably Revelation, uh, whenever that last authoritative apostle's teaching was recorded for us in the word of God, they would say that those, it was like the sun came out and those lesser lights are no longer needed. Uh, that, that they're so tied to the apostles that when the apostles were gone with Jesus, that those gifts are no longer needed to validate them. Now we have the word of God uh, to stand on and to preach. That is our foundation, they would say. Continuationists, people like myself who would believe that we live in the 
now of Paul's day, we believe this also in part. We, it is unquestioned uh, that those gifts were given to validate the apostles and the apostles' teachings. But continuationists believe that these gifts of the Holy Spirit were also given for additional purposes that endure past the apostles' death, past the pinning of the last part of Scripture. We think that there's more purposes to them than just that. I was trying to think of an illustration of this, and, and one came to mind. So I'm not going to attack anybody with this, so don't be alarmed. Okay, no tomahawk throwing uh, like we did Friday night. So what is this, if you can see it? What is this? A hammer. So if I was to ask, uh, just, if that was just in casual conversation, not preaching a sermon, I'd say, what is this for? Like, let's say I was to ask a kid that. I would say, what is the purpose of this? Like, what do we use this for? What would, what would they say? Okay, driving a nail. That's typically, I mean, from the time kids are very little, they have toy little plastic versions of this. And they know that, hey, grown-ups use this to, uh, to bang nails into stuff or to keep stuff together. It's to drive nails, right? That seems very obvious. That is the purpose in their mind of a hammer. But what I want to point out to a young kid, to any of us in this room, is, is this not designed to do other things as well, or at least one other significant thing? It's also, it's also rounded, right, and has these teeth on the back. It's made by the one who made it to do something other than just drive nails in. Uh, that it's also made to pull them out. Uh, so there's, just because something has an initial obvious purpose to it does not mean that there is no reason to believe there's additional purposes to it. But there's ones that are more enduring. And I would say that the, these gifts of the Holy Spirit are like that. They are most certainly given by God to accompany the apostles' message. That's what's very evident, no question in the Bible. But what we see in Scripture, even the text we've been looking at the last couple of weeks, is there's additional purposes. There's additional things that God was using these gifts to do, even in the early church, that went beyond just validating the message of the apostles. That, that were to, to minister to people who already believed, not just to convince them to believe. Like people who for years had already believed that Jesus had been crucified and raised from the dead. These, these gifts weren't given just to persuade them to believe initially. They were given to minister to them as Christians, as people who were following Christ in the day-to-day -day of life. And the way I would, where I would show that to you is back even in what we saw in chapter 12. If you turn back to chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, Paul would have just written this a couple minutes before what he's writing today in chapter 13. Back in chapter 12, he said in verse 7 and following, he, he lists all of these gifts of the Spirit, among which are all of the ones he mentions in chapter 13 that are going to stop someday. Prophecy, knowledge, tongues. And in chapter 12, verse 7, in talking about these gifts, all of them, he says, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. But these gifts of the Holy Spirit, including prophecy, tongues, and words of knowledge that he talks about in 13 as someday passing away, he's saying in chapter 12, those gifts are given for the common good of Christians for the church, not just for the unbelieving world to persuade them to join the church, but they're for the ongoing life of the church, to, to build each other up. We're going to see in chapter 14. He, he talks, we're going to take a few weeks to go through this, but in chapter 14, the next chapter, he talks about tongues and prophecy in particular, and talks about them as being for the purpose, not of getting people to believe Christ, but for the purpose of encouragement consolation, comfort, building up the body of Christ. They were given not just to prove that the apostles were true, but to build up people who already believed the apostles. And so they have this enduring value. They weren't so tied with convincing people the gospel was true that they go away when the apostles die. Uh, they were, had an ongoing purpose in the life of the church. We'll take time the next few weeks to see this, but uh, continuationists, we would believe that these gifts were given for additional, more enduring purposes, for building up Christians, not just convincing people to become Christians. So that's the most significant area as the, the issue of purpose of these gifts. If the, if the gifts were only to validate the apostles' teaching, 
then it makes logical sense to say that they have gone away, that they passed away when those apostles stopped preaching. But the apostles continue to minister uh, through the words that they wrote. And do we not still need those gifts even to persuade unbelievers today? If they serve those purposes even in that day and age, could they not still continue to, in part at least, be used by the Spirit to convince people that this message is true, the message we believe, the message we preach, the message of the apostles is still true today. But the second issue, uh, and I'll spend less time on this one, is uh, what I would call the silence of the scriptures. So there's disagreement about what the purpose of these gifts was. Was it only to validate the message of the apostles, or did it have a broader range that would be more enduring? But the second reason, and even cessationists would not stake their ground uh, only on this issue, but it's what I would call the silence of the scriptures. And cessationists believe this, they, at least most that I would talk to, they, and I used to believe this. There's, they believe that the New Testament's overall silence, which I'll explain that in a moment, but silence on these, about these gifts indicates that they were ending, even in the days of the New Testament. And what, what they mean by this, and uh, John MacArthur is, is a, a proponent of a view like this. I've read a lot that he's written about this, and I, I respect him greatly uh, as a preacher. Uh, but, but many hold to this. And what they would argue is this. is They would point out, and you probably know this, but the New Testament is a lot of, mostly, other than the Gospels and um, the, the uh, Revelation of John, is a lot of letters, right? Uh, and even though we have them all at the back of our Bible, they weren't all written at the same time. Uh, they were written within a span of a few decades, right? As the church was starting to get established and, and, and situations would prompt the writing of these things, like, hey, I need to address this pastor or address this church. And so they got written in time, sequenced out. First Corinthians is one of the letters where we see these gifts of the Spirit described the most in depth, given the most direction about, and First Corinthians, I keep stepping on my shoestring here if I step funny, uh, the first Corinthians was one of the first. It wasn't the first, as best we can tell, but it was one of the earliest letters that we have. And then there's a lot of letters and writings that came after it that were written to churches, that were written to pastors of churches. And as you read those, if you want to try to read them sequentially, you could look it up and do it. It's an interesting thing to do. Um, but as those were written, these gifts of the Holy Spirit largely are not mentioned again. Uh, a few times prophecy is mentioned, which we're going to look more at that gift next Sunday. It's mentioned in First Thessalonians. It's mentioned in Romans. Healing is mentioned in, in the book of James, but that was probably even earlier. Uh, but what, what cessationists would, uh, would believe is that the reason that it was written to the Corinthian church, like what we've been reading now, is because that was tied so tightly to the message of the apostles uh, that as apostles started dying out, as apostles started moving on to be with the Lord, that those gifts were no longer going to be operating. And so thus it would make sense in their mind that, yeah, we don't see a mention of, of tongues again. We don't see mentions of miracles or, or of healings or words of knowledge again. We don't see those things as time goes on. And in their mind, they're saying that validates my belief that the gifts were just so tied to the apostles and validating them that they were no longer needed as the church got older and older. And so they would look at that silence of the scriptures outside of 1 Corinthians as evidence of their belief that we've, we now live in the then that Paul was anticipating. But continuationists would believe this, uh, and I would say this, that God's silence, where we would have expected him to speak, doesn't mean we should ignore texts where he has spoken. And what I mean by that is this. A lot of people think, well, if these gifts were so important, I've literally heard people argue this, and I used to argue some things like this. If these gifts were so important, if they were so beneficial to the life of the church, don't you think God would have like told this to more of these churches? Like, don't you think God would have told Timothy, hey, make sure that you have prophecies that people share. Make sure that you get, teach them how to share tongues if they're going to or how to pray in tongues. Make sure that they're anticipating certain gifts of these things. We assume God would have done that. That God would have said that if he wanted churches to uh, practice these things and to think these things in an ongoing way. But just because we think God should have said that, but because we think, oh, wouldn't it be obvious that God would have told Timothy more about these things? 
that he would have written it in that letter or that he would have told uh, the church at such and such place to, to be uh, doing these things. Just because we think God should have done that does not mean God has to do that. And the fact that God was silent in those letters does not mean that we can forget or ignore that God has spoken in what we call 1 Corinthians. That he has given commands. He has told us to desire. He has told us to use gifts when they're given, like Romans 12 says. And I I will acknowledge that that is true, that these letters, by and large, as we read on in the New Testament, do not talk about these gifts. But my question would be this, is how many times does God have to commend something for us to take it seriously? And even more to the point, how many times does God have to command something for us to obey it? Is one not enough? It is. I think we all would agree that. But So we cannot let the fact that there's a silence where we would expect speech to undercut where God has spoken. That he has told us these gifts are good. He has told us to desire these gifts. He has told us to use these gifts in certain ways. And as an example of this, lest we just think this is an issue with spiritual gifts, I love getting to take communion with you all. I look forward to that very, very much each month as we do that. But I don't know, some of you may know the answer to this, but outside of the Gospels, the records of Jesus' life where he actually ate the bread and the cup with the disciples, how many times in the New Testament, outside of 1 Corinthians, is communion mentioned or Lord's Supper mentioned? Any guesses on this? It's a big fat zero. It's nowhere. Like it it appears in 1 Corinthians 11, right before where we started a few weeks ago. Uh, It appears there and there's instruction given about communion, about how to take the bread and the cup in an appropriate manner. And that church was commended to do that. But then there's no instruction to Timothy about it. There's no instruction to Titus about it. There's no instruction to the church at Ephesus or in Galatia. There's no instructions of the church in Thessalonica. It's nowhere. But we don't read about communion and say, well, that was just written to the Corinthian church early on, and then it wasn't mentioned, so it must have just been falling away. It must have been passing away. We, we let 1 Corinthians 11 speak to us once, say, we do this. We value this. We obey this because God has told us to in his word. And so may we not let silence where we expected speech to undercut or make us disobey the places where God has spoken. So that was a little survey of of purposes of gifts and then the silence of the scripture and why we may disagree on those things. But I want to come back to 1 Corinthians 13, where we started. 1 Corinthians 13, because I think sometimes when we come to this issue, we can feel like, man, such respected people disagree about this. Such respected people who I love and admire, they disagree about this issue. And we can feel like there's cases to be made for both sides. And we can feel like, man, a lot of this is just kind of logic. Like, well, if they were given for this purpose, then logically they must be stopped being given. And we can, we can try to just think logically and, and make connections and assumptions in our mind. We can feel like, man, can I ever come to an actual answer on this question? or whether we live in the now, or whether we live in the then, or whether these gifts continue to be given, or, or whether they have stopped being given. But I would say that the text we're in today is the one that speaks the clearest. Actually, it's not just an issue of logic. It speaks clearly. It tells us when these gifts are going to end, doesn't it? In verse 10, he literally says, when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. The partial is those gifts that he's talking about, right? Because he says they're in part. Knowledge and prophecy and tongues, those are partial. He's saying the partial will pass away. But verse 10 says, when the perfect comes. Like when the, the full version of what these gifts offer comes, that is when these gifts are going to stop being given. It, it, it's not even left to say, well, it may happen before that. He says, when the perfect comes. These gifts will stop being given. They will, they will fall away. They will cease. And so we are told in Scripture, even in this text, that, that those stop when the perfect comes. And has the perfect come yet? And we may answer that slightly different. But I think you would be hard-pressed to make an argument that the perfect has already come. That what he's describing, a shift from seeing partially to seeing face-to-face. 
a shift from us speaking like children and reasoning like children to now we know fully and we have no fallenness in our logic and thought. Has that come yet? I would say no, it hasn't. We are still awaiting the perfect. And the perfect will come when Jesus returns. The perf- that is when all these gifts and what they're giving us in seed form will come to full fruition. Where we, we, the things that we know in part now will know fully. The things where we might have misunderstanding, there's no more misunderstanding. The, the barrier that we can feel relationally at times between us and Jesus is no longer present. The perfect comes when Christ comes. And that, Paul says, is when these gifts will stop. And what that means is until we get there, the Spirit can and does give these gifts. He may not always give them in the frequency that we expect. He may not give them in, for, in the power that we expect. But these gifts were for the church. And they will last, he says, until the perfect comes. And I believe even just based on this text itself, we can say soundly that we live in the now. And we're still awaiting the then. We're still awaiting the perfect to come. And since we live in the now, I want to say a few things to us as a church and then we can sing. But since we live in the now, I think since we live as 1 Corinthians 13 is describing it, in the now where these gifts still are given, where they're still for the building of the church, for the common good, we should as a church and as individual Christians, we should desire these gifts. We should even, I would say, anticipate these gifts. And I'll just say, well, like, I, I think they could be given, and I, I, I mean, I'd be okay if, they, if they're given. We should have a desire for them. We should have an anticipation that as we pray to the Lord, as we ask him by his spirit to give us these gifts that he will, uh, that these are for our upbuilding, that they are for our encouragement, consolation, uh, for our, our building up of the body of Christ. The Holy Spirit's menu has not changed. It hasn't. The, the gifts that he gave then, he continues to give today. The, the, when we read 1 Corinthians chapter 14, I'd encourage you to read that before you come next Sunday. When we read about prophecy and tongues that he talks about there, those aren't just ancient records of things that happened long ago that we, even when we see the good of them, can, that we can never experience ourselves that we will never see actually come to fruition today. Uh, they, they can and they do. And we ought to have a desire and an anticipation of those things. And as these gifts are given by the Spirit, we should use them. That's clearly what is stated in the New Testament, clear as day in Romans 12, but implied here in these passages in 1 Corinthians, is when gifts are given, we're to use them. Uh, We're to use them as individual Christians. We're to use them as a collective church. And I thank God that we have in chapter 14, we actually have instruction about how to use some of these gifts that may seem foreign to us. Uh, These gifts of prophecy and tongues in particular. We have guidance from God about how to use these gifts and things to be wary of and things to be excited about. Ways that that we see that these gifts can be used. And we're going to go slowly through these the next couple weeks to see if we're to use these, as God would give them, if we're going to use these, how will we use them? How will we not use them? Like, what will we be careful about? But how will we use them as they're given? And I know there are some of you who are are nervous about this, and I I understand that. I I am grateful for the things that are are, uh, underlying that nervousness like you want an authority of the word of god to never be compromised and we will not compromise that as a church and you don't want these gifts to start taking over the life of the church as if they're where the holy spirit's at and that's what everybody has to have we will not believe that or preach that or practice that Uh, but we do long for these gifts to be given and as they're given we want to use them the way that god's told us to use them and to trust him that they're for our good, that they're pointing us to Jesus, they're helping us know him more and experience him more. And so I would encourage you to, to be reading these passages of scripture and trusting that they're the word of God. They're not mine. They're not even just Paul's. Like these are words from the spirit who's the giver of these gifts about how to use them, how to not, and to trust that he knows what he's doing and to have a, an eagerness to see how he may build us up as a body even through the giving of these gifts. And the last thing I would say is since we live in the now is that we should love, hear me on this, we must, not just should, we must love the people who disagree with us about this. 
There are people in this room who I love uh, that I disagree with and who disagree with me. And it's not just because of things we prefer or don't. We understand the scriptures differently. But let's not forget what we just read in verses 1 through 7 of 1 Corinthians 13, the call to love. That it is the greatest. Did you catch that in verse 13? Uh, Back at the end of chapter 12, he said to desire the greater gifts or the greater, higher gifts. In 13, he says that the greatest, the highest thing that we should long for, and even starts chapter 14 by saying we should pursue this, is love. And may we love each other as a spiritual family as we walk through these things, as we ask questions of each other, as we uh, maybe take baby steps of seeing some of these things practiced in our church, which will give guidance for these things. May we love each other even in our disagreements. May we bear all things and believe all things about each other and not speak ill of each other, not create straw mans that we think somebody else's viewpoint in either direction is weird or strange or a joke, but may we come to the word of God and seek to be guided by it. And even where we disagree, may we have charity and grace and love toward each other. Amen? Amen. We do live, I believe, in the now that Paul was describing. Uh, we long for him, uh, I long for him, uh, the Holy Spirit, to give more of these gifts. But I'll, I'll tell you what, what I long for even more than that, far, far more than that, is to see Christ face to face. Like I hope and pray and I trust even that the Spirit will give more of these gifts and more of gifts we already have uh, in the life of our church. He'll give us more and more of these gifts but he, he gives them as he sees fit. But one thing I know will happen is that Christ is going to come back. There's going to be some Sunday where we worship, and if he doesn't return on the Lord's Day, if he returns during the week, there's going to be some Sunday that's our last one to, to sing in part and know in part, and where we're going to be raised with him as his people to know him perfectly forever and to literally see his face. And these spiritual gifts are, are wonderful blessings from God. They are gifts. They're called gifts for a reason that he gives to us. But he is the greatest gift, Jesus is. Like he is the one that we should long for, even more than we long for prophecy, even more than we long for tongues, even more than we long for healings when we pray for those things, even more than we long even for teachers. May we long for the giver of those gifts. May we long for him to return. Because someday the perfect will come, and he has a name. Amen? is Jesus, and he is going to return. We will see him face to face, and we will know him fully, even as we've been fully known. I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward. We're going to sing a song about that very thing, which I've been excited all week to sing with you, uh, called uh, When We See Your Face. And so I'm going to invite you to stand with me. We'll pray, uh, ask ask the Lord to be honored even in our singing and our conversation to come, and then we will sing, and I'll leave you with a word of benediction. But let's pray together.